Okay, so if you have a Bible open to Exodus 14, we're in a series on uh, Exodus looking at the idea of a holy God and holy people. And um, as we look at that, last week Pastor Josh talked about the Exodus, God's people leaving, and it left on kind of a high note. Um, if you were in, the, in Israelite at this time, you have lived your entire life in bondage and slavery, and the good news is that last week we talked about how they were finally freed, and they were let, they were let to leave. And yes, it happened a little bit more abruptly than they probably would have liked. It was like, okay, go, just go right now. Get all your stuff and go. Uh, so it was a little bit abrupt, a little bit rushed, but at the same time, um, there's nothing but like hope and good that must come in the minds of the Israelites as they're leaving Egypt. You end on a high note. It's so great, right? What could possibly happen now? Well, if you're brand new to the Bible and you've never read any more, then you're about to be really surprised by what happens. If you're not new to the Bible, then you're going to be like, oh boy, they have no idea what's coming. Um, before we jump in and read this, I want you to, well, I'll tell you, I was, I was told the first service this, um, I was on vacation a week, about a week and a half ago, we were on vacation, and went to this, uh, went to, stayed in this condo, and there's like this really pretty, like really nice lawn out in the back that stretched along all the other condos next to us, and then went down to where this pool was, so it was a really long lawn, you kind of couldn't see it once you went past the condo next to us, and then out in front of that was just nature, it was just beautiful mountains and stuff, so we're out there, and my kids were really getting into finding bugs, looking for bugs. And um, so we got them bug jars. And I, for some reason, nothing feels more constructive to me than like me doing nothing and watching my kids find bugs. Because I'm like, yeah, they could be like watching TV or something. I feel a little bit bad about that. But look, they're outside, they're in nature, this is good for them. It's so, okay, good. So they're like obsessed with finding bugs when we're on this trip and we're watching them out there do it. And my son gets really into trying to find butterflies, which are pretty much the hardest bugs to try to catch and to try to find. And there really aren't a lot of great butterflies. The moment you start trying to find them, I, I could talk about this for hours because it's been my whole life for the last couple of weeks. Basically, if you and I were walking down the street and I saw a butterfly, I might chase it because right now it's in my mind. Get the butterfly get the butterfly. It's a big deal when there's a butterfly. He sees one and he takes off on this lawn and he runs. He's like, I'm going to get it. So he runs and there's nobody there and it's fine. He can go for a while and then come back. We're on the end. So he knows where we are. So I'm like, he'll be fine. And then like 10 minutes go by. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go get him. You know, he's probably out doing something fun. And right as I'm about to go out the back sliding glass door, which is open, I hear crying and he's like running up from pretty far away, and he's just sobbing while he's running up to us. You know, he's crying and sobbing. And for, I'm thinking, like, I don't think he could have fallen down or hurt himself. There's nothing really to fall on. He must have gotten stung by a bee because he's constantly just grabbing bees. He doesn't understand the concept. Even though he's already been stung by bees before and you would have thought that he was dying, he still just grabs them. So I thought he's probably stung by a bee. That's what Ellie thought too. Uh, but then he gets a little bit closer as I'm coming out, and he says, I thought I was lost. He says, I thought I was lost. And he was so freaked out and sad and upset. He was just like devastated. He's like, I thought I was lost. And uh, I remember hugging him afterwards. I had to hug him for like 10 minutes. I didn't have to, I liked it. But I hugged him for like 10 minutes. And it sounds bad when I say it that way. And his, he was, apart from sobbing, his heart was beating so hard because he was so scared because he thought for that period of time that he was totally alone and he had lost us. And we've had that happen before with him, uh, where that'll happen. And there have even been times, if, you, if you're a parent, you know what this feels like to, to have your kid think that they lost you. You maybe know what it feels like to lose your kid. I'm not going to tell any stories like that because it would make me look like somebody who loses their kid. But 
I'll just say, if you know those feelings of, uh-oh, I think I may have lost one, uh, it's a pretty awful feeling too, right? And the reason why he loses his mind when this happens, I mean, for the next 20 minutes, 30 minutes, we had, to, like, again, I keep saying half, but we didn't have to. He kept wanting to come up and give us hugs because he just kept remembering. I was almost lost. I didn't know what to do. I was so scared. Okay, fine. I feel better now. And then he would come and hug us again. And the reason he was so devastated and so upset is because my son, like, like any kid, like any of us, really, uh, with a parent... He, he, he like spends so much of his time trying to be completely independent of me in terms of wanting to do whatever he wants to do and being like, I don't need you to tell me what to do. But then he spends all the rest of his time being completely dependent upon me. And when push comes to shove, the idea of being without me or being without us is absolutely devastating to him and terrifying, right? I say this because there are so many parallels between having a heavenly father and the earthly parents that we have. The idea that like you even see with the Israelites, wanting God to be their God wanting him to rescue them and save them, but at the same time, seeming to live almost like uh, there isn't really a God looking out for them. We'll begin to see that more and more as we go further into Exodus. I want you to do me a favor, and I want you to try to think of a time in your life when God was there for you, when God brought you out of something, brought you through something, delivered you from something, or miraculously even provided something. And you look at it and you say, I know that that was God who did that. And it may be a crazy, miraculous story that when you tell people, they go, no way, no way that happened. Or it may be a story that nobody would be impressed by, but you lived it and you go, I know for a fact that that wasn't me, that wasn't my circumstances or any of my hard work, that that was God stepping in and taking care and sometimes even delivering us. I want you to try to remember that. I want you to try to hold on to that in your mind for a second as we, as we go through Exodus 14, because we'll come back to it. I'm going to read, um, there aren't any slides this morning, um, but I'm going to read uh, um, the verses, and you can follow along with me. This, we're going to read verses 1 through probably 9 um, to begin with. Exodus 14, 1 through 9 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pharaoh between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people, and they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt and officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and encamped at the sea by Pharaoh in front of Balzaphon. I'm going to stop right there for a second. So much for a happy ending, right? Uh, God has steered the people to a place where they're now stuck by the sea. 
And he has now, the Pharaoh has realized that these people weren't just leaving for a couple of days to worship their God, but they actually have fled. And so it says that he is angered. And then it also tells us that God is continuing to harden his heart. And you can tell that by the way he's talking about them now. He says that they're defiantly going away from him, even though he let them go, right? And he has decided once again, I'm going to pursue them once and for all. And so the Pharaoh gets his armies together and he chases after the Israelites. The Israelites who were on their way to freedom, who had nothing to worry about. God was getting them out of Egypt and they were finally free. God had brought them right to the sea and he had brought their enemies to them. Now, what's interesting here when you read it is that it even says that he overtook them and encamped by the sea. So we don't know if the Pharaoh and his armies were like coming up upon them and hadn't caught up yet, or if they were actually there, if they were like, all right, we've got you, we're going to stop here, everybody just go to sleep tonight, and we'll deal with you in the morning, okay? Uh, but what we do know is that the Pharaoh has brought his entire army with him. And it makes it a point to reference something again and again, as we'll see in this chapter. It references that there's a Pharaoh, that he has armies with people, it references that he has horses and that he has chariots. And it keeps talking about these things again and again. The reason why is because if you're an Israelite and you're being chased by a bunch of people, that's pretty scary. If you're being chased by people on horses, that's really scary. If you're being chased by people on horses with chariots, that is the equivalent of someone chasing you with tanks, okay? Because at the time... Uh, an army was an army. It wasn't that complicated. One person against one person. If they had more people than you, then they were stronger than you. But if they had people on horses, then they were faster and stronger than you. And if they had chariots, which the Israelites did not have and the Egyptians had, then they may as well have had tanks because they were faster, they were stronger, they were more resilient, and they were more aggressive, and they could cover more ground. So the fact that they, not only are they being chased by the Egyptians, but by this fierce Basically, war machine that is coming upon them is absolutely terrifying to the Israelites. And they go, what has God done to lead us to this place where we are stuck and there is nowhere to go? And now the armies have come upon us. Here's what we read as we continue on in verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For you Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Let's stop right there. There's a couple of things here in the Israelites' response to God. They respond really to Moses, and then he comes to God, and because Moses, unfortunately, is the middleman, he gets the brunt of God's sort of frustration who says, why have you even come to me, Moses, with this complaint? Because I've got things covered. Now, there's a couple of things that are evident in what the Israelites say to, the, to, to Moses and eventually wanting Moses to say to God, okay? The first is this. They are totally delusion, delusional. 
The Israelites, in their fear, are saying things that aren't true and aren't real. And here's what I mean by that. The first is they go, isn't it true that we said to you back in Egypt, and here's what they say in verse 12, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. That's not true. They didn't actually say that to Moses. They never said anything like that. So in their fear, they're automatically thinking, no, 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 wait, weren't we, doesn't everybody remember we were actually fine there? We were happy there. We were okay in Egypt being like, tortured and, 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 and it says brutally like forced into slavery generation after generation. Wasn't that okay? And we were okay with that. And, and didn't, isn't Moses, didn't when you come to us, we said to you, just leave us alone and let us continue to serve, right? No, they didn't say that to him actually. Moses and Aaron came. They did some mighty acts to show that God is behind them. And the people said, okay, great. We'll follow you. Do what you got to do, right? That's what actually happened. In their fear, they are not remembering what happened, and they're not remembering how bad it was, the situation that they were in. Now, on top of that, in fear, their response here is not right. They're delusional in their response and what actually needs to happen moving forward, because they go on to verse 12 and say, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Here's what's wrong with this statement. There's only two parts to it, and there should be three. There's only two scenarios or two possible outcomes here. The two possible outcomes are we serve the Egyptians or we die in the wilderness. There's no third possible outcome. And you go, well, what would that third outcome be? Well, it's easy. It would be an outcome that in any way, shape, or form reflects the fact that there is a God and that he has brought them to this point already. You see, what they're doing in their fear is they are functionally living like people who have no God. They have immediately in their fear gone to, we can't rely on God at all. And so again, there's two options here, everybody. Either we serve in Egypt, which would have been better than dying in the wilderness. A reasonable group of people would say, we have just seen the Lord of Moses the Lord God himself, sent 10 major plagues in Egypt. We've just seen God give irrefutable empirical evidence of his omnipotence, his power, of his commitment to us. And he has brought the most powerful military and political nation on the face of the earth already to its knees once before. The most reasonable thing to say would be, God, we need one more. We need one more plague. We need you to show up and do something. Everything up to this point has shown us that's what's going to happen. That's what's going to get them out of this. They say, why has God led us to this place? We don't know. All we know is we can't count on him to deal with it once we're here. Their fear has caused the Israelites to be delusional. And God's instructions to them are this. They are be quiet because he says that to them. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. He's like, I'm done hearing from you guys. And then he says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to go forward. That's his response to them. Tell them to go forward. Their response is, stop complaining about how afraid you are and about how impossible this situation is and move forward. Why is this so hard? Well, I don't know, maybe because they're facing the sea and they have one of the world's most powerful armies at their back about to attack them, and Pharaoh is furious with them for leaving him. 
There's a couple of reasons why they end up looking at it this way, why they end up not seeing God in this whole situation. And it's things that I think we can relate to pretty well. The first one is simply this. No matter how much God has been present up till now, they still live like God isn't really a factor. Like he's not really a part of what's going on. And I think that we know what that feels like. That no matter how much God has done up to a certain point, you still can so easily live the next day like God's not really someone to be counted on. How many of us, when we're honest, wake up in the morning and think about our day and think, what's God going to do today? And I'm not just meaning in the spiritual sense. I mean actually thinking he's the one that does the things that matter. It's not really me and all my efforts. It's not actually just my circumstances. We live absolutely in a world that does not believe that God is making things happen. We live in a world that believes here's the circumstances, here's the situations we're presented with, and then we try our best to deal with them through what we have. But God says, no, it doesn't work that way at all because if you have me, then none of those things matter because we see that all the way in the beginning of Exodus. We see every time God's enemies try to do something, God shows them that he can win. He shows them that circumstances couldn't matter less. He shows them that the idea of odds don't matter at all, that the idea of likelihood doesn't matter at all, that when God's involved, he can do whatever he wants. And so we should approach every day going, God is a part of this. I am a person where when you look at my life, you see somebody who's pretty dependent upon this supernatural being to do things, but they don't live that way, and neither do many of us, no matter what he's done. Some of the most religious people I know live like God cannot actually be dependent on. In fact, that's the very definition of religious living. It is putting great effort into the way that you live so that you don't have to rely on God to do anything for you. You kind of go, God, I get it. You've done a lot of stuff, and that's great, and all those people need you. But I've got it covered on my own. You probably can agree with me that I'm doing pretty well. Go focus on somebody who needs more help. Some of the most responsible, reasonable, concerned people I know live as though God isn't going to take care of anything and that they have to take care of everything. The other reason why they do this isn't just because God's not a factor for them. It's because they want freedom, but they want freedom from everything. We love freedom. Who doesn't want freedom? Who doesn't want to be free from any kind of oppression or any kind of rule? Who doesn't want to be free from any kind of rule and authority in their life? Everybody ultimately wants this, to be free from that, it seems. What God's people want is they want to be free from everything, They don't want to be slaves in Egypt, but they don't want to be slaves to God either. They don't want to be dependent upon him. There's this phrase that gets associated with this, which is, you know, let my people go, right? That's Moses. When everybody thinks, if somebody were to say, what does Moses say to Pharaoh? You'd probably think, let my people go. Maybe you'd sing it or something. Let my people go. That's what Moses says. That's not what Moses said. Moses, on behalf of God, said, let my people go so that they can worship me. He didn't just say, I want them to be free from this. He says, I want them to be free so they can worship me. I want them to be free so they can be my free people, my people who are free to worship me. The reason I say this is because we want freedom. Oh, we want it so bad. But we want freedom from everything, even from God himself. We want to be completely and totally independent. And so being put in situations that are impossible, we are more prone to say, this is impossible than we are to say, I can rely on God. 
I'm not, I'm not so free that I'm free even from him. This is a part of being on his kingdom. We read in verse 16, uh, in the next couple of verses, sort of the plan. God's going to give Moses the plan here for what's going to happen. He says in verse 16, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Stop right there. So here's the plan. It's simple. We're going to walk through the sea. When I said move forward, I really meant it. We're going to walk through the sea, and don't worry, I'll lead the Pharaoh and his people into there, and ultimately, whatever ends up happening, I will get glory over Pharaoh. That's all you have to worry about. So I'm going to lead them into the sea, and then the Pharaoh's going to go too, and then whatever happens, I'll get glory over Pharaoh. Go, and don't talk. That's basically the instructions that are given. Why in the world wouldn't they do this? Why in the world wouldn't they just go forward like God wants them to on their own? This is one of the most relatable situations ever. That's the reason why this is one of the best known Bible stories of all. It's not just the epic scale of it, but it's the relatability of it. It is how absolutely clear the odds and the circumstances are. It doesn't get any more clear than this. You're facing an ocean, and you don't have boats, or you're facing the sea, the Red Sea, and you don't have boats. You have an entire army behind you, and they're not stopping, and they hate you, and they want to destroy you. What can you possibly do when God says, move forward? Why would you move forward? Why wouldn't you turn around and try to bargain with the Egyptians? You know, what, what else... Why wouldn't we go forward? I think that we, we look at a situation like that in the Bible and we say, I will be honest, there are times that I have felt like taking a single step forward, I don't know how to do it. When I'm faced with something, whether it's because of how difficult my life has gotten, that I feel like a single step forward depends on some kind of a miracle. To be faced with a situation in which the only way to safety, the only way to salvation, really the only way for some of us just to tomorrow is to hope, but not to hope in what you can do because you look at what you can do and you look at the circumstances around you and you say, I can't hope in that. There's nothing hopeful here. So then what else am I going to hope in? What am I going to look to in the future? What am I going to look to beyond this that tells me I can keep going forward? The worst thing that they could do was fear. Jesus tells us in the New Testament again and again and again not to fear. He says, don't fear. And we get a sense that the, that the enemy is at his best when we are fearing the most. Jesus says, fear not. When are the Israelites paralyzed in and not being able to do anything when they are filled with fear? We're just now beginning to see that fear is the enemy of trusting God and of his provision. They were afraid that Egypt would kill them. 
or afraid that they would drown in the sea and be driven into it. God has brought them to a point where without him, they're going to perish. Why would he do this? Why would God even bring this about? Why would God bring them to a situation where if he doesn't do something miraculous, if he isn't involved, that they will perish? Why? Because when God isn't involved, we will perish. Because without him, every step of the way, we are perishing. And most people who are perishing don't know that they're perishing. And that's the worst part about it. That since the fall of man and since people continued physically living, even though they were spiritually dying, we could go on living thinking everything's fine without realizing that we're very much just dying, that we're perishing spiritually. And so he puts his people in situations where they will die if he doesn't pull through, if he doesn't show up and deliver them. Why would he do that? Because we need him. And the first and most defining characteristic of a holy people, this series is called A Holy God, Holy People. And we've been talking a lot more about the holy God up to this point. And I'm going to give you guys basically the answer. The, 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 I'm, going to, I'm going to spoil it for you and tell you what does it mean to be a holy people? We're going to spend a long time talking about this over weeks. But ultimately, to be a holy people means this, to be dependent upon God. His people are the group of people that are dependent on him. So that when you look at them, you say, that's God. When you look at things that happen with them, good things, you say, that's God doing that thing. It's clearly not them. They're not capable of doing it. How did the Israelites get out of Egypt? Ten plagues that God caused. How did the Israelites get away from the Egyptians? They had a head start? No. They had a really good route? No. They were good walkers? No. God made it happen. There's no way it would have happened without God's provision. God's people are the people who depend on him. The only reason for this life I see before me is God. When you're a people who are dependent on God, then the only thing that you can hope in ultimately is in God. You can't hope in yourself. Well, everyone around you is hoping in themselves. And then when those things don't work out and when the circumstances say you have nothing to hope in in yourself, what do they do? They give up. Right? And we, we, we're filled with despair and fear. Why are God's people not to fear? Because we can hope in him, no matter what happens. And so we ought not to fear. For most of us who encounter this story in Exodus, it should overwhelmingly be a reminder and a call to have confidence in God. That's what this ought to give us, is it ought to give us the ability to say, I trust God and I hope in him. That I would move forward now, seeing what he did with his people, knowing that I can have hope regardless of what the circumstances look like. That he cares about us, that he knows what's going on. That no matter how difficult things may be, no matter how bleak the outcome is, that he is still good and that means that you don't need to be afraid, but instead you can hope. There are so many parts of our lives that we get afraid and that we get locked up and we say, I don't know how to take a step forward. I don't know how to make sense out of what is going on right now. We see it in our lives, we see it in our families, we see it in our marriages, we see it with our kids, we see it in our jobs, we see it everywhere. We get that feeling and that sense. 
But we are to be people who say, I am going to have hope even when everyone else would say there's nothing to hope in. That when I'm in a marriage that is falling apart and that the rest of the world would say, it's over, it's done, I'm going to hope. Because I know that I hope in something bigger than just the circumstances and the history and the baggage and the past. That in a family that seems completely broken, that is suffering, that when the world would say and the circumstances would say, yeah, it's pretty shot, it's pretty much done for, that we can say, no, I will hope. I will hope in something beyond that because I don't live my life built on the circumstances of things and I don't have to be dictated and governed by the history of things. But there is hope. Some of you know what it's like to have a child who you struggle to hope for as they grow and as they live their life and as they even like, like make a mess of it, it seems. And you say, how can I hope when all the circumstances tell me there's not really a point to keep hoping anymore? Because ours is a God of hope who says you depend on me to do things. You're my people. I do the things, not you. And why would we hope anyway? Why? The Bible's answer is the same every time. Every time the Bible talks calls us to trust, calls us to hope. It calls us to do it in the same way. It says, because of what I've already done. It reminds us of something that God's done. And it says, because that's the God we're talking about. And wasn't I good then? Didn't I pull through then? So won't I pull through now? I asked you guys to think about something that God's done in your life. Something that you know was God. It may be big, it may be small, but you know that it was God. And you depended upon him. You were forced to, and he pulled through, and you could hope. Now, our tendency is to say, yeah, that was then, but this is now. That was then, but that's not moving forward. But that's not what God tells us. That is not what we read about in his word. That is what the Israelites do. They say, yeah, he did 10 plagues, but he wouldn't do something else. He's probably done. That was before. That was different. I don't know what God's going to do, but I'm not going to count on him doing something. We hope moving forward because of the things that we've already experienced and seen done. I say that I think that we can have hope in our lives as people, as individuals, in our families, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, and all these things, that we can be hopeful because of who God is. But all this last week, as I've, been, as I've been thinking about the Red Sea, and I've been thinking about God's people crossing the Red Sea, I've been thinking again and again about our church. I've been thinking about our church specifically, and the things that God is currently doing in our church and about the times that we are in in our church, and that this is a specific time, even in the life of a group of people, because God calls us to hope in him, but he calls us collectively to hope in him. What is God's people? God's people is a group of individuals that hope in him. How does he want to be known throughout the world? Through his people, through the church that hopes in him. I'm still kind of getting to know the history and the past of this church because it's such an old church. It's been around for a long time. I was trying to get an exact number this morning. Could not get it. I kept asking people who were saying, ask this person, ask this person. They might tell you. The closest I got was we started in 1889. And so we're over 125 years old. But then somebody said, no, I think we're 150. So I, like, nobody knows apparently, right? We don't look a day over, you know, 100 though, right? <laughs> That's what we should put on our sign. 
We're, we're 150, but we don't look a day over 100. Our church is over 125 years old, and in that time, absolutely unbelievably incredible things have happened through this church. We have seen generation after generation after generation raised up in faith here. Like we've seen multiple generations, even in a family, raised up in the faith here in this church. We've seen entire families come to faith through their connections with this church. We've seen outsiders, people who want nothing to do with church and don't feel a connection to church at all, come in and be connected. And as a result of that, find hope and find new life in Jesus in this church. We've seen the sick miraculously healed here. We've seen those who seem completely lost be found here. We have seen those who are drunk, who are addicted, those who are abusive and angry, those who are hopeless. We've seen them find life and find freedom in Jesus here. We've seen wives lead their husbands to Jesus here. We've seen husbands lead their wives to Jesus. We've seen parents lead their children to Jesus. And one of the first stories I ever heard at this church was of children that ended up leading their, their parents to Jesus here in this church. This church has chosen and made specific effort to accommodate everyone, people of all abilities, people of all physical abilities in any way to be able to come and be a part of this church and this family. This is a church that has ministered to people who are the very youngest and people who are the very oldest and has even defended the lives of people who aren't even born yet here in this church over all these years that we've been around. This church has had seasons of great abundance, abundance of resources, abundance of people, abundance of wonderful programs and huge things that we've done, things that we've even been known for doing. We have sent people out to the four corners of the earth to reach the, the unreached people in our world. And when those people are going to places that don't even have God's word in their own language, then we've supported people as they've gone out to translate God's word into a language that people can understand so that they can know who God is. And we have sent people out to minister to the marginalized and the poor and the underrepresented in other countries, not even in our own, to be reached for the gospel. We've seen churches, we've, seen, we've planted a church from this church, and we've sent people out to be pastors and to be ministers and to do ministry from this church. It has been a sending ground. Wonderful things that God has done that cause us to say, look at what God has done. Can we hope and can we be confident? But our church isn't as big as it used to be. If you've been around for a really long time, you may know that. Many of the things that we do, the things that we're known for, many of our events, many of our programs, they're not as, as, as spectacular as maybe they once used to be or they were known for being. If you're around and you talk to people, you can sometimes get a sense that there were even sometimes in some of our ministries this sense that, you know, there was the glory days, you know, and, 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 and we miss those days sometimes. We're also right 
smack in the middle of watching one of the biggest leadership transitions that this church has ever undergone. Over almost a year ago now, you welcomed me in as lead pastor, very different from the lead pastor before me, although I promise you in all the ways that matter and all the things that you really care about, exactly the same. We've gone from two children's pastors to one. Our women's ministry director has stepped down recently because she simply feels God leading her to focus on something other than women's ministry. And our youth pastor who's been here for his whole life, almost, and who served in youth ministry for 15 years is leaving youth ministry and isn't even totally sure what God's calling them to. How insane is that? And how scary is that? And for some reason, we just changed the lobby on top of everything else. And some people I've talked to are more upset than have anything else. I'm saying all this stuff because if you've been here long enough, you've noticed these things. And if you have noticed these things and you're at all a normal human being, and I'm going to use the word normal here, you've worried about these things. You've thought things don't seem as good as they've been before. And with so much changing and so many things happening, this doesn't feel right to me. You've asked yourself, what is the future of a church like ours? But I can honestly tell you that the things you are experiencing and you are feeling around you, the things that we're seeing happen in the midst of this church are things that God is doing for a reason. And as a result, because he is a good God, they are good things because they lead to good things. Even if they're painful things and confusing things and disorienting things and terrifying things. Like a new lobby. I talk to people, they say, Ed, seriously, what's really going on? What's going on? Seriously. And I say, listen, I am not known for being an optimistic person. I'm not known for being a super positive person. I would use the word realist. Other people would use different words for it. But I like the word realist because I think I'm being real and everyone else isn't. But I, I don't tend to be known that way. And I will tell you that I am overwhelmed with hope for what God is doing and is going to do in this church. I'm overwhelmed with it. And I don't feel that way about most things in my life. I freak out about all kinds of stuff, things that are not that big of a deal. I am a catastrophizer, like of all, is that a word? I'm not, okay. <laughs> what if, what if maybe, just maybe, the decline that we have experienced in our church, in the numbers of people, and even in the budgets that we've had, and in the numbers of programs and the things that we've done, and events is an indication that God is calling us to simplify what we're doing so that we could focus solely on the Great Commission, the very reason why the church was created to begin with. What if the way God is leading the changes in our staff is a sign that this church really is ascending ground? And rather than just saying that we are, and then hoping that because we're a family, everything stays exactly the same way forever, because that's what family does. I mean, have you been to Christmas, right, gatherings with everybody, and you're like, well, we're family, you know? I mean, we, we really like each other here, which is nice. 
But, but if we're a family and we're a sending ground, then that means that in the last six months alone, as we've watched people like Joey go and begin youth ministry on campuses, which I'm sure in some way affects his ability to even do youth ministry directly here as much as he was. When we see the sweets leave to go to Montana to serve as lead pastor of a church there. When Courtney, one of the most spiritually discerning and prayerful people I've ever met, says, God is leading me away from women's ministry onto something else. That I believe that that's because God is calling her to that and sending her to that thing, even if it doesn't totally make sense to me. That I believe that when God is calling the Sheltons to take a step of faith, that doesn't even fully seem to make sense in a world that says you have to know where you're going, right? I can relate. I, I, may, be, I may be projecting here. I can relate because a while ago, my family took the same step and felt like there were, there were more answers of, from God of things that we weren't being led and called to do than things that we were being led and called to do. That in that, maybe it's possible that that is because our God is ascending God. And that he says, I don't just keep people forever to do things, but I send them out to do things. And if we want to be that church, that that's exactly what it is and what it feels like. What if God has pruned this church so that we can once again grow and thrive, but not necessarily with all these tons of people coming to us, but what if maybe so that we can grow and thrive as we send people out to reach even more than could ever possibly come into the doors of this church? And that the only way for us to be able to really fully do that is to experience some of the pruning that we've gone through for the last many years. What if, and this is probably the craziest one for some people to think about, what if... With all the things I just said about what we've done and who we've been as a church and the things that God has done, what if God wants to do even more in the future than he's done in the past? Do you know how hard it is to think that way in a church with such a rich history, with such a wonderful name in the community, to say that our best days aren't behind us, but they're ahead of us potentially? For some reason, that's just a hard thing to say. You wouldn't think it would be, you know? You would think if you were starting a brand new church right now on day one, all you'd think about is the future and what's coming. But, but, the, but one of the hard parts about being a church with so much history is that it's easy for us to think it's been so good at different times. And then when you begin to experience something that doesn't feel like that, you begin to think maybe it won't be like that again. Or maybe it couldn't ever, God could never do something even new or even better than that. But what if he wants to? Every plague seems to be the last plague to the Israelites. Everything that God did that was big, that showed that he knew what he was doing, we want to think it's the last thing that he's going to do. We want to think that was great, that was good. We'll even remember it and celebrate it. But let's not count on it, right? Let's try to find a way to not count on God to do things like that moving forward. The last time that Pastor Tom preached and the first time that I preached were the same time. It was called First and Last. And um, the very end of our message, we were each going to share a verse, whatever verse that the Lord had led us to, that was kind of our prayer for the church. And separately, God brought us both to the same verse. And when we sat down at a table to talk about it, I said, he said, I'm going to read this verse and pray for it. And I said, that's really crazy because here, that's the verse that I'm going to read. And it's Ephesians 4.20. And it says this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
Why is that our prayer for the church? Because it's hard for us to believe when God has done great things that he will continue to do more abundantly than we even ask or seek. We have a problem honestly asking or seeking for abundant things to begin with. And what does he say here for generations after generations? It is hard for us to believe this, it seems. And that's why it's our prayer for the church. My prayer for this church is that we would believe that. And, and, and I've been thinking about this all week because I've been reading about the Israelites facing this sea and being in this discouraging situation and that you could look at it one of two ways. You can say, it's hard, it doesn't make sense. Or you could say, it makes complete sense when you're talking about a God who says, I want the glory. I don't want people to look at the Israelites and say, look at how great they were at doing everything exactly the way that you would think things would go. But instead that people will look and say, is God not doing something? Now there is this theory in like, not really a theory, but it's like a, a phrase in apologetics. Uh, and it's the God of the gaps. And the way that the God of the gaps kind of argument works is that, you know, yeah, anytime a Christian encounters something that we can't explain, we'll just say that's God. But that's just a gap. And then when the gaps get filled by science or something else, then maybe Christians go, oh, uh, never mind. And then, oh, but here's another one, right? And a lot of people would say, when you say when things are difficult or things are hard or they don't seem to make sense in terms of the odds that they'd be successful, isn't that just a way of saying when everything gets hard, we'll say it's God, right? And then when everything's good, you know, uh, we'll say it's something else or maybe us. Can't you just say in every situation, oh, I know God's doing something. He wants these great things. He's hopeful for these great things. And what I can say is in the situation of our church, and it's the reason I asked you to think about a thing that God's done in your life before. It isn't true that we're just filling some gap up with God to try to feel good about things. And the reason we know that is this. We know that because God is actively doing things now. And we know that he's done things up till now. He is showing us that he is involved and that he cares and that he's in control. And because he shows us that, we know that we are to continue to expect, expect that he's going to keep doing things. And that can be a really hard thing for us to do, to expect that. My thing that I think about with uh, God showing up was us coming here. Amongst a lot of other things in my life is we were going to plant a church in Eugene and we were leaving a trip to Eugene, Ellie and I. And we had had half our support raised to plant this church and we were leaving and we just felt this overwhelming sense, both of us, that God was saying, don't move here. Instead, moved to this tiny place called Oregon City that we knew almost nothing about. And we pulled over at the border of California and Oregon, and we got out of the car, and we walked through the snow a little ways. It was snowy. It was January. And, uh, and we prayed. And we just prayed, like, God, we have no idea what's going on. All we're hearing from you is things that we're not supposed to do, things that aren't supposed to happen. And we don't specifically know exactly how you're going to make all this work. And in my own life, feeling that there are times where I am right up against something and it just doesn't make any sense that something's going to happen, that God still says, but the only way for you to keep walking forward, the only way for you to be able to take a single step forward is to have hope, to hope in me, not yourself, and then to see what comes as a result of that. This is what it looks like when God says, that when God does what he says he's going to do. We read about it in verse 19. It says, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. 
coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other at night. Okay, stop right there for a second. So what it says he's doing is he's taking his glory and this cloud, the pillar that were leading them, and he puts it behind them to basically buy them some time and create confusion between them and the Egyptians. And then we read on, it says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire of cloud and looked down upon the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Stop right there. It says that God looked down. Now, God's always looking down. He always sees us, right? Why does it say that? Throughout the Old Testament, we feel that we see that phrase, he looked down, he looked down, he looked down. It says he looks down when it relates to the ark. It says he looks down several places. And what that means is that God is focusing his attention. He is choosing to be involved. He is choosing to be present, not just know what's going on but to personally be present and involved in what's going on. And it says that when he looks down, their night watch, which is their guards that were at the time paying attention to what was going on, completely lost their minds and freaked out. They had followed the Egyptians into the sea. They had followed them in. And it says that, they, that there was a great panic. And why was there a great panic? Because the mud and everything that they got caught in completely rendered their horses, their chariots, their power, their might completely useless. They realize all of a sudden, this God, through just bringing us through some mud, has completely taken away our ability to fight the Israelites. And so they turn in fear and they run, saying, okay, you win, we're done. God, you're right, we're wrong, you fight for the Israelites, now we know who you are, now we see who you are, and we want no part in this. And in verse 26, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea to return to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. I'll stop right there. He covers them with the waters. He kills them and destroys the Egyptian army. And it says that the Lord saved Israel that day. God's message to his people was a clear one. All you have to do is hope in me enough to keep going forward. You don't even have to talk. You just have to hope in me and keep moving forward. Confident that I'm going to do something that I say I'm going to do. Confident that I'm going to do what I've been doing up till this point and it's not going to stop. The message of Exodus could not be more clear. It is that God always wins. It is that God has this. That God knows what he's doing. 
And that regardless of the odds, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the present reality, that God wins. And so if we're going to hope in anything, we hope in Him. We hope in Him as individuals. We say, like, my life, my family, everything will be characterized by a hope in a God who is supernatural. Not in all the stuff that we can do. Not in how great we can be. But if people look at us and they say, you're awesome, and they don't think about God, then I've committed plagiarism, and I've taken credit for whatever he's doing. And in the very same way that if people look at a church and they say, that place is great, that place is awesome, but they see us, and they see the things that we do, and they see all of the stuff that's happening, and they think it has everything to do with just us, then we've committed plagiarism. That people ought to look at us and say, it's clear that God is doing something. It is clear that God is the one that these people hope in. It is clear that their hope is in something beyond just what seems right in front of them, but something that's based off of what God's already done, which we as a church are so lucky. We're so fortunate that we have so much that we can point back to and say, look at what God has done, and that we even have things that we can point at now and say, look at what God is doing, and they give us confidence in saying, we believe that God can and will do even more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are because when we're, when we're honest, the reason that we relate so much to the Israelites is because we would do exactly what they do in this situation. And if we were faced with the sea and the Egyptian army behind us, we would not want to move forward. We would forget a lot of the good things that you've done and we'd be prone to say, you know what, we're just gonna, we're just gonna give up. God, our prayer is a simple one this morning. It is a prayer for hope. I pray that you would give those of us who are struggling with discouragement, with despair, with frustration, that you would give us hope, that you would give us the ability to be hopeful in you and in what you can do, that you are good, and that you would give our church an overwhelming sense of hope, Lord. I feel it every day. I feel it all the time. And yet I know that it's a struggle for all of us to feel it. And so my prayer is that we would be confident in what you're going to do in us and here, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. At the end of this, in the next chapter, the entire chapter is devoted, or most of it, to the Song of Moses, which is nothing more than Moses' response to this incredible thing that God has just done. He sings a song of worship to God. And this is what he says in the beginning. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This all started with the Pharaoh not knowing who God was and God choosing to have a people through which his name would be known. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And it's exactly what he wants to do in each and every one of us and exactly what he wants to do in this church. He wants for his name to be known and for him to get the glory. Amen? Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great Father's Day. Take some candy on the way out and we'll see you guys next week. <laughs>